Uh, we have a lot to cover this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to John chapter 11. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been studying this encounter, this event of Jesus and the family of Lazarus, and it all culminates in this section that we'll look at today. We are going to go through verses 38 through 57, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Listen, if you don't have a Bible, there's a couple on this table back here. Make sure you grab one on your way out. That's our gift to you. Again, this morning, John 11, verses 38 through 57. I'll read this for us, and then I'm going to pray for our time together this morning. I'll begin. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45, now many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to uh, the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. There he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let us pray. <clears throat> uh, Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have graciously gifted us with this day. Father, we thank you that you've given to us your word, written and revealed for our good and for your glory. Father, would you help your servant this morning to preach in a way that brings glory to your name, Lord, this is a very familiar text to a lot of us. And sometimes because of the familiarity, Lord, we lose the glory found in these verses. So, Lord, would you 
do the work that only you can of opening our hearts to receive the truth of your word this morning. Lord, would we be compelled to live for Jesus as we see him as this glorious Savior that gives life to the dead? Father, would you glorify yourself through this time of teaching your word? Lord, as I speak, would you increase and I decrease? Lord, would it be all about the praise and exaltation of you, your name, your word, for your glory, for the good of your people? In Jesus' name, amen. So death, <clears throat> death is a part of the human experience. It's something that tends to linger over all of us. We could really describe death as this faithful companion that sort of accompanies us through all of our days. You know, you could think about looking through a, a photo album of some of the greatest moments in your life and you look back and death is like the person, you don't even remember them being there, but somehow they're in the background of every picture, constantly lingering, because death is a certainty. And so it looms large in our lives because it's guaranteed. And not only is death loomed so large because it's guaranteed, I think it affects us so greatly because in a way death feels so final. You see, once a person dies, that's it. There's no hope of reconciling in the future. There's no hope of more holidays and time together. There's no coming back. Once you're dead, that's it. It's done. You see, death feels very final, and in a way, it, it really is. But see, for the Christian, for those that are in Christ, we have no need to fear death, for death has no victory over us. Amen. You see, brothers and sisters, we are eternally secure in the one who has conquered the grave. You see, where so many are hopeless, we have a hope that is beyond this life. As those who are gathered together under the eternal care of the good shepherd. You see, Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life. And that those who believe in him, though they die, yet shall they live. In fact, he says, if we believe in him, we shall live and never die. What glorious news that is for us this morning. You see, when we look at the text that we'll study here today, Jesus solidifies these divine and really outrageous claims that he makes. And he does so by raising a man from the dead. You see, what Jesus is going to show here is his utter and complete authority over life and death. As the Son of God, he has the power over the living and the dead. He is Lord over all. See, the last two weeks we've spent studying this encounter here in John chapter 11, and again, it's going to culminate here for us today in this incredible sign where Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. Friends, this is a powerful passage. There's much that we can glean from this text. You see, I've titled this sermon, The Resurrecting Power of Christ. 
Because I believe the purpose of this miracle is, again, to show us the power that Jesus has to give life. Let me say that a little more theologically accurate, the power that only Jesus has to give life. But you see, this isn't just about physical life. What Jesus does in raising Lazarus from the dead has far greater significance. See, there are glorious spiritual implications to this miracle. And my hope this morning is to encourage you, brothers and sisters, by pointing you to the divine glory of your Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to see that it is Christ Jesus who gives life to dead men. And see, unless the Lord graciously imparts life to men that are dead, we all remain dead. We're all like Lazarus, trapped in the tomb, utterly hopeless. You see, as we look at this text, I want to really take it in two parts. It's a really simple, uh, simple structure, I'll say, simple outline that we'll look at. Part number one is the resurrection, and we see that in verses 38 through 44. And then part two will be the response, and we'll see that in verses 44 through 57. Again, this is a really simple outline that we'll use to kind of walk through these verses. So let's begin. So where are we? In the, again, the last couple of weeks, we've kind of walked through this encounter. So briefly, what has happened is that Lazarus falls ill. Jesus gets news that his friend is sick and dying, and so he remains where he is for a couple of days. Jesus eventually makes his way to Bethany, where he's met by Martha, one of uh, Lazarus' sisters. And she weeps and falls before Jesus and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then Jesus says, do you believe your brother will live again? She says, I know he will resurrect in the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Makes this powerful proclamation about himself. And then Martha makes this wonderful profession of faith, and she says, I believe that you are the Son of God, the Christ who has been sent into the world. And so then Jesus continues on where he's met by Mary, Lazarus's other sister, and she too is grieving the loss of her brother. And Jesus is deeply moved by her grief. And then we closed last week, and we landed on verse 37, where people are standing around. They say, surely this man who opened the eyes of the blinds, couldn't he have prevented this tragedy? Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 38. And verse 38 tells us that once again, Jesus is deeply moved. Now, Pastor Tyler did a great job of explaining that to us last week because the Greek language that's used there for deeply moved is the same language that's used in verse 33. So I'm not going to belabor that point. But what I will say is that we learn something from Jesus even through that. Right? Verse 38 tells us that he was deeply moved, but yet he had come to the tomb knowing full well what he was planning to do in resurrecting Lazarus. So what can we take away from that? How can we apply that personally here? What do we learn from Jesus? What we learn is that real compassion should lead to action. Real compassion should move us to action. You know, I think we tend to get this wrong sometimes. And I I can admit at least I know that I do. Right? Sometimes I feel sympathy for a person. I can even empathize with their situation. And what do we always do? We say, hey, man, praying for you. 
You know, I even did this this week, and I don't think it's wrong. It's, I'm not saying it's sinful or wrong to offer to pray for a person. Prayer is a powerful weapon, which we're going to talk about that in a minute as well. But how many times have I truly been so moved by a person's situation that I'm led to now step in, to intervene, to do something? So again, I was even challenged by that this week. I'm texting with a brother, and he's, he's kind of going through some things, and I'm like, man, I'm praying for you. And then I'm convicted because I know in my time of study, this is a point I plan to make before my congregation. So how can I push you guys or encourage our church to do that and not do that myself? So I stop and I say, hey, what can I do? How can I help? Let me step in and assist you. Now, I want to be clear. You may not have the means to always rectify a person's situation. And guess what? You're not Jesus and neither am I. So I'm not telling you you need to go out and save the world. But what I am saying is that if we are truly compassionate towards a person and we need to step in, we need to be moved to action. See, in the Lord Jesus, our great Savior, he demonstrates that for us. In fact, God has shown us that in his compassion for his people, he was moved to intervene. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we just sang the lyric in the song, he looks upon our helpless state. Right, the Lord looked upon our helpless state as sinners who were desperate in need, and he intervened. See, in his perfect compassion and his loving mercy, he's acted on our behalf, sending his son, Christ Jesus, his only begotten, to lay down his life, appeasing his righteous wrath, redeeming the lost, and gathering together a people for himself. Man, praise God for his compassion and his divine intervention. See, real affection should be accompanied by action, but however, it's also important to note that even if Jesus had not acted in uh, resurrecting Lazarus, that would have not made him any less loving or any less compassionate. You see, God does all things according to his own divine will. He's perfect in his judgments and his, his decrees. Furthermore, as I just mentioned, he's given us the eternal blessing of salvation. So even if God never provides another morsel of food, another moment of breath in your lungs, he has still given us infinitely more than we deserve in Christ Jesus. His compassion leads him to action. And so he's deeply moved and he comes to the tomb. Now, at this time, Mary and Martha and those who have accompanied them are gathered outside of the tomb, and the Lord gives an instruction, and he says, take the stone away. However, here we see Martha, the sister of Lazarus, she, she objects to the Lord's request. She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And see, Martha's response here reveals that she still did not understand what the Lord Jesus was intending to do. You see, in her mind, all she could see was the material, what she thought to be physical limitations. All right, my brother's dead. He's been dead for four days. Why would we take the stone away? There's, 
only going to be an odor. Jesus, his body is starting to decompose. Why do you want to open the tomb? Now, let's stop right here for a moment. Again, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to make personal application. See, how often are we just like Martha? The Lord has clearly given us a command. He's clearly spoken to us through his word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And just like Martha, we have plenty of reasons not to obey the command. Not to heed his instruction as if somehow we know better than God. Again, I am not above the implications of this text. I see this play out in my own life from time to time. I know God's word has clearly told me to love my neighbor. Ah, God, but you don't know my neighbor, man. You just don't know this dude. I, I can't. He's just, man, if you knew him, he's arrogant. He's hostile. I just have excuses. We know what God said. Well, God's word has clearly told us to go into the world and to make disciples and to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And we have the opportunities to share the gospel with those around us, but we have a million excuses why we won't do it. How often are we just like Martha? To where we say, but Lord, instead of yes, Lord. Right? We know what God has commanded. We know what he's called us to. And I believe, just like Martha, I believe a lot of us at the root of our objection is often a lack of trust. Right? We don't always believe God. We don't always believe Romans 8.28, which tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, we don't always trust and believe that. We look at what's happening around us and we say, but Lord, instead of yes, Lord, moving forward in obedience. Brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you this morning is to say yes to God, to move forward forward in obedience, trusting him in all circumstances, even when it doesn't make sense to you. Even when things don't look good, even when everything around you looks dead and destructive, say yes to God. Be obedient. If we continue on, we move to verse 40. We see this wonderful promise that Jesus gives to her. That belief in him leads to anything but disappointment. Rather, believing in Jesus reveals the glory of God. Let's look at verse 40. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See, I think this is a comfort to Martha here. Jesus isn't necessarily rebuking her. This is more of a reminder now, the text doesn't record for us in this conversation where Jesus specifically had said that to her. So he may have said that to her in another conversation that wasn't recorded for us here. Or this could simply be a summary of all that he's promised as the one who is the resurrection and the life. Now, at any rate, again, Jesus is encouraging her here to stop focusing on the physical limitations of her brother's dead body and instead to focus on him, to believe in him and to behold the glory of God. See, Jesus is God incarnate. He is the word made flesh. 
In fact, John writes in John chapter 1, he says, the word that dwelt among us. And we have seen what? We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Listen, brothers and sisters, for those that believe in Jesus, he reveals to us the glory of God. And he reminds Martha of this reality here. I hope that's not lost upon you this morning. That as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have had our eyes opened to the reality of this great Savior, what does he show us? He shows us the glory of God. That's who Jesus is. He wants Martha to understand that. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, I want to make a clarification here. He's not saying that this miracle is dependent upon her faith. He's not saying, listen, if you just believe enough and have enough faith and I'll raise your brother to life for you, that's not how this works. That's not at all what Christ is saying to her. You see, God acts in his divine sovereignty, not under the direction of coer or, or coercion of men. See, that's what it means for God to be sovereign. That means he rules and reigns without any outside interference or any assistance. He's sovereign. Right? So this resurrection of Lazarus was ordained by the Lord to glorify himself regardless of how Martha would have responded. In fact, Christ intentionally delayed arriving because he knew exactly what he planned to do in raising Lazarus. Now, although that everyone there present was going to see this miracle, yes, that's true, it's only those who have faith in Jesus that would see the glory of God displayed through this sign. Now, commentator Leon Morris is helpful here as he explains this a little bit further for us. He says this, quote, the glory of God was the one important thing. This means that the real meaning of what he would do would be accessible only to faith. All who were there, believers or not, would see the miracle. But Jesus is promising Martha a sight of the glory. The crowd would see the miracle but only believers would perceive its real significance, the glory of God, end quote. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us that there were many who saw Jesus. There were many who heard him teach, even witnessed these miraculous things that he did. But it was only those who believed in him that truly obtained the meaning of his coming, the meaning of his words, the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection. All others are blind to the glory, to the glory of God. Friends, so it is in our day and time. There are those who hear the words of Christ and it's only offensive to them. They don't perceive, they don't see or obtain the glory of Christ through his word and through all that the Lord is doing in the world. And praise God to be counted among the number that see and believe and behold the glory of God this morning. Amen? 
As we continue on, it appears that Martha essentially gives consent to what Jesus instructs. And they take away the stone in verse 41 here. And here we see something incredible from the Lord Jesus. Let's look at verses 41 through 42. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Now, in the midst of all the mourning, all the objections, all of the questions and the chaos, what does Jesus do here? He prays. I want you to notice something about his prayer here. He isn't asking God to raise Lazarus. Rather, he is thanking the Father for hearing him and granting this request. Again, the text doesn't record for us where Jesus actually prays for Lazarus, but we, I think we're right to assume that he had already gone to God the Father on behalf of his friend. So I think this is yet another great reminder for us, even in this demonstration of the perfect unity between the Father and the Son. You see, Jesus, as a member of the Godhead, Jesus does nothing outside the will of God the Father. And he's introduced his hearers really to this reality. If you go back to John chapter 5, uh, verse 19, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. You see, Jesus isn't acting independently here. He's only acting in accordance with the will of the Father. Again, because there's perfect, eternal harmony and communion and fellowship as a member of the Trinity. He's in perfect relationship with God, the Father. And so Jesus says something incredible here. He says, you always hear me. You always hear me. Hear me. Let's stop here for a minute because I think we find great confidence and encouragement in this truth. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is our advocate, the one who mediates on our behalf. You see, Hebrews 7 says that he lives to make intercession. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This is our Savior, Jesus Christ, that intercedes on our behalf. He is always heard by God the Father. What a comforting and wonderful reality that is this morning. Jesus goes to the Lord on our behalf, and he's heard. So I want you to even think, and we'll get here in a couple of months, hopefully, if we move forward to John chapter 17. This is a great encouragement to us. You see, there Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for unity. He prays for their sanctification. He even prays that he would be glorified through them. Then in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Guess what? That's you and me. That's us. We can have confidence. We can take great comfort in knowing that all those that Christ pleads for are secure. And then when he pleads on our behalf, God the Father hears him. 
He's acting in accordance with the will of the Father to save the lost, to keep us in his eternal care. What a comfort to know that our mediator is always heard by God the Father. We continue on in verse 42. We've just kind of discussed the power of Christ's prayer. Now let's look at the purpose of Jesus's prayer. Let's look at verse 42. Again, he says, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Now I love this. I love the practical purpose of Jesus's prayer. He says that really my prayer is for the benefit of others so that they would believe. See, once again, I believe this text provides us with some great application, something we can take away from this. You see, Jesus prays here with the desire that those around him would hear his prayer. They would see that God hears him and that they would therefore believe. You see, this reminds us again of the power of prayer in our own lives and also in the lives of others. You know, I think about this as I was sitting down working through this particular application. I began thinking about my children, right, in my own life. I think one of the most impactful things my children can see is their father constantly on his knees, pleading with God the Father, praying with great confidence. I mean, praise God, how influential could that be? Right? When you sit down to pray and there are people around you, it's not just you praying, going to God the Father, just as something to do. Yes and amen. We should consistently be in prayer. But think about how much that ministers to those around you, that they see you as a person who's committed to the Lord in this way. Brothers and sisters, prayer is a powerful tool at our disposal. And not only for the impact of our own lives, but as a visual demonstration that ministers to the people around you for the glory of God. Jesus takes the time to show us that. In fact, Jesus is really providing these bystanders with a great means of grace through his prayer that they would believe and be saved. See, verse 33 tells us that when he had said these things, he then cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus! come out. And it says the dead man came out. So here we are, finally. We finally reach the climax of this encounter. See, it's as though John is recording this account and he's slowly been building towards this crescendo, leading us to this remarkable moment of Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. See, this is compelling that John would spend all of this time on this one event speaks to its significance. In fact, this isn't just significant. This is eternally significant. There are glorious, God-honoring, Christ-exalting theological implications to this sign. See, first of all, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead shows us his divine power and authority. That as the Son of God, he has command over life and death. Jesus is the one through whom all things have been created. He is the giver and sustainer of life. Again, John alludes to this if you go back to John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. John writes this about Jesus. He says, all things were made through him. 
And without him was not anything that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. See, Jesus Christ is the only source and substance of true and lasting life. See, Jesus has made these incredible and, again, outlandish almost claims throughout the Gospel of John. But here he authenticates all of his divine claims. He once again demonstrates his divine nature through this resurrection, for it is only God who is able to give life. See, the power of Christ is truly overwhelming. He speaks and he brings forth life. Oh, what a mighty God he is. See, while this miracle in and of itself is magnificent, it's what it represents that's even more breathtaking. You see, Jesus resurrecting Lazarus from the dead has a greater spiritual significance. You see, what he does by physically raising Lazarus is meant to point you towards something else. It's meant to draw our attention to a truth that is only in Christ that the spiritually dead are raised to life. You see, John has written all about this in his gospel account, right? He's given us his purpose. He says the reason that he wrote all of these events, the reason that he records all of this is so that you would believe in Jesus Christ and that by believing you would have life in his name. See, that's his purpose for recording this event. Not to elevate Lazarus, but to fix your eyes Upon Jesus. You see, Lazarus was dead in the tomb. He was unable to do anything at all. In the same way, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that apart from Christ Jesus, we're also dead without hope in this world. But Ephesians 2 also reminds us that in Christ, we've all been raised to life. You see, Romans 6.4 tells us that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too have been given and been able to walk in the newness of life. See, that's what this miracle is about. That's why he calls this brother out of the tomb. Brothers and sisters, listen, if you're in here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that stone's been rolled away from you and you too have been raised to life. Amen. We were all dead with no ability, totally hopeless, and Jesus intervenes, bringing us to life. That's the work of God. It's not based on anything that we do. You see, as those who live on this side of the cross, we look back at this story of Lazarus, and it reminds us that Jesus would accomplish by his own death and resurrection. It reminds us of what he accomplishes for us. See, this is really foreshadowing to what is to come. See, what Jesus does here is for the glory of God. We'll talk about that more in just a moment, but I want to point you to something again. I want you to notice the power in Christ's words. That Jesus speaks and Lazarus comes. And it was immediate. Listen, I don't think Lazarus had to stop and think of whether he wanted to come out of that tomb or not. He immediately responds to the voice of Christ, and he exits the tomb. You see, even this is a beautiful picture of the Lord's sovereignty and authority over salvation. You see, when God acts, when he speaks life into dead men, regenerating them and bringing them from death 
to life, they must respond. As Jesus says again in, in John chapter 10, he says, they will listen to my voice. And Jesus is Lord over all. He has all power and authority to simply speak and to resurrect the dead. You see, to the believer in the room this morning, Christ has called you through his gospel, what Paul calls the power of salvation to everyone who believes. See, that's how we've been raised from death to life. The gospel is preached and the Lord intervenes through the preaching of his word. And the dead are graciously and miraculously given life. Listen, that's my story. It's probably your story too. That somewhere you were dead and you were cold and apathetic to the things of God. And you heard the gospel preach. You hear the word of Christ. And to where it had always been an offense to you. Now suddenly you're alive to the glory and the splendor of Christ. You hear this gospel message and it's no longer offensive. It's irresistible. You've been regenerated, raised to life through the power of Christ. And this is a reminder of the great sovereign authority of our Lord, his power to save. See, as I was doing this study, several commentators note, they say that Jesus' word, in fact, is so powerful that if he had not addressed Lazarus by name, that all the dead in the graves would have come out. I don't know if I'm there yet or not. I don't know if I actually believe that. I don't know. I think Jesus has total command, so he would never make any mistakes. I don't know about that particular point, but what I do know is that Jesus has all power and authority, and that on the last day, he will speak, and every dead will come out of the grave. We go back to John 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says this, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, when I began this sermon a few minutes ago, I said that death is difficult for us to reconcile because it feels so final. Well, this text reminds us that death is not the end. That every person who has preceded us in death, both believer and unbeliever, will rise again. Some to spend eternity enjoying the perfection and the presence of their Savior, others to stand before the righteous judge. And that is all determined in how we respond to the words of Jesus Christ. Which brings me to my second point, our second half of this discussion We've talked about the resurrection. Let's now move to the response. We see that in verses 45 through 57. Let's quickly look at verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, What are we to do? And we'll just stop right there. See, yet again, we see this division over Christ. And this is something we've encountered in the Gospel of John. We've talked about this multiple times. But again, verse 45 reminds us that there would be those who see the glory of God revealed through Christ and respond in faith. Praise God. There will be those who believed in him. 
But there will also be those who are opposed to Christ. See, rather than hearing his words and seeing all that he does as the means to eternal life, rather than seeing his glory as the only begotten son, they're offended. They're hostile to the Lord Jesus. See, this text tells us that some believed, but others went and reported this event to the Pharisees. Now, the text doesn't exactly tell us their reasoning for going to the Pharisees and reporting this incident. But the fact that John places this group next to the group that has come to believe, I think we're right to assume that they have ill intentions, especially considering that they most likely knew the hostility of the Pharisees and their animosity towards Jesus. So what happens, it says that now the chief priests and the Pharisees, they assemble the council. So this is the Sanhedrin. This would be the governing religious body. And they would be necessary, it was necessary, I should say, for them to have a council to pass any kind of judicial uh, outcome, right? For any kind of judicial action that was required, that the Sanhedrin, which was the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they all gathered together. And so the text tells us they get together and they say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So they're perplexed at this point. They don't know how to respond. And this is really a great question. What should we do? Well, what they should have done is repented and believed the gospel and looked to him in faith. But unfortunately, that's not the case. They couldn't see the glory of Christ revealed. Let's look at verses 48 and 49. It says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. So let's stop there for a moment. It says that these brothers are motivated by protecting their position. You see, they want to protect the nation. They want to protect the temple. They want to protect their people. And they see Jesus and his rising popularity as a threat to all of the above. You see, their fear is that Rome will come and crush the nation if they get wind of this insurrectionist Jesus, of this Messiah, this Savior who's gaining traction and gaining this following. They're going to think we're rebelling against Caesar. And they're going to come and take away all that we have. They're going to crush the nation. So at this point, for these men, their desire is for self-preservation. See, that's their biggest obstacle to belief, is this desire to preserve self. And I could really, I could spend a lot of time talking about that. That's another sermon for another Sunday. But at any rate, they have no desire to acknowledge Christ Jesus as Lord. Even after he's performed all of these miraculous signs, Jesus has healed the paralyzed man back in John 5. He's given sight to a man born blind in John chapter 9. Then here, he's even raised a man from the dead. All of these things authenticating his divine identity. But for these men, rather than beholding the glory of Christ, to them, this is the last straw. This is the nail in the coffin. And so Caiaphas, who's serving as the high priest that year, he says to the council, let's look at verses 49 through 50 again. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. 
See, so Caiaphas has determined that either Jesus must die or that the nation will perish. See, it's settled in his mind that they must eliminate Jesus in order to save themselves. He says one man should die for the people. Caiaphas had no idea just how apropos his words were. Verse 51, he tells them that, or verse 1 tells us that he did not say these things of his own accord. Being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. See, although Caiaphas spoke as a wicked man with wicked intentions, he didn't realize that what he said was actually in accordance with fulfilling God's divine plan for salvation, a plan he had determined before the beginning of the world in eternity past. You see, really, their plan, their scheming, all of this was to lead Jesus to the cross. Verse 53 says that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. See, they had made up their mind. It was a settled point in their mind. From that point forward, they would begin to seek the life of Christ. Again, brothers and sisters, this is all part of God's divine plan to save humanity. You see, Caiaphas was right. Jesus would indeed die for the nation of Israel. He would lay down his life to gather and redeem his people. See, the text says he would die to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. Now, this is likely referring to the believers, those Jews that were part of the dispersion, the ones who were living outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem. But see, in a greater and broader sense, this is referring to the salvation of the Gentiles. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus would draw all who would come to believe in him, both Jew and Gentile. See, this text, this one flock that he's gathering is the universal church. If you go back to Jesus' words in John 10, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. and I must bring them in also. What Caiaphas doesn't even realize, what he's saying, yes, Jesus will die for the people, but die for all those who would come to believe in him. You see, their plan to kill Jesus did not thwart or overthrow what God had already planned. What he had sovereignly willed and decreed would come to pass. Not just come to pass at any time, but at the appropriate divine time, that he had determined. If you look at verses 54 through 57, quickly it just reminds us that Jesus no longer walks openly and now he's gone to this place in the wilderness to spend time with his disciples. Right, chapter 11 ends here with Jesus no longer walking openly, but I don't want you to take that as fear or cowardice. This isn't Jesus running and hiding. This is Jesus operating on God's divine timetable working according to his own plan. See, Jesus wouldn't go to the cross a moment too soon. Then the text tells us that this Passover is approaching and many of the people are looking for him. What we must remember is, listen, brothers and sisters, this is the beginning of the end, essentially. This is the beginning of Jesus' last week. As the Passover begins, this is his last week as he's marching to the cross. It says that they're looking for him. They've instituted a plan that if anyone sees Jesus, let us know. They're planning to kill the Savior. You know, as we close our time together this morning, I want to 
simply direct your attention again to the whole purpose of this account. See, this isn't about Mary and Martha. It's not about Lazarus. It's not about the Pharisees and their hatred for Jesus. And this is about the glory of God revealed through his son, Jesus. You see, Jesus uses this miracle or this sign to show us his power over life and death. See, this simultaneously reminds us of our desperate condition apart from him and the glorious future that we have because of him. See, without Christ, we're all dead in the tomb. We're hopeless in despair. If you're here this morning and you have not turned to Christ, if you have not looked to him in faith, if you don't have eyes to see him for who he is, then you're just the walking dead. Sure, you have physical life. You're living, breathing human being, but you're not truly alive. It's only Christ that gives life. It's the light of the world as the resurrection and the life. Listen, my encouragement to you today is to believe in the Lord Jesus, to trust in him, to look to him and find true and lasting life, rivers of living water. He is a worthy savior, loving, compassionate, infinitely capable to save. And to the believer in the room, I want you to be encouraged this morning. For just as Jesus has laid, raised Lazarus from the dead, he's also raised you to life. Praise God, you're no longer dead and buried under the weight of your sin, but you've graciously been given this new and abundant life, eyes to see the Savior and a heart to believe. Yes, death is a reality for these physical bodies, but though we die, Jesus says, yet you shall live. See, on the last day, he will raise every believer to eternal life, enjoying his perfection, spending eternity in his presence. That is the hope and the peace that the gospel gives to those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the way that it ministers to our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and fellowship here together this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we have been raised to life, that like Lazarus, we were all dead in the tomb apart from you. But Lord, through your loving intervention, you have given us life, and not just any life, not just physical life, but eternal and abundant life. Lord, would we live for your glory as your people. Father, I pray for anyone in here this morning that doesn't have that life, that has not given themselves to you, that hasn't surrendered to Christ Jesus and acknowledged him as Lord and Savior. But would you be working in their hearts even now to help them see the majesty of Christ, that they would behold your glory and respond in faith. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.